Good morning. Wow. Love the pep, the vigor. Uh, welcome to chapel this morning. Uh, pleasure to be with you all on this beautiful Lookout Mountain morning. Um, special warm welcome to the folks who are sitting in overflow, if there's anyone there. Um, we, we love you and we miss you. And um, a, a warm welcome to our visitors. We're glad uh, that you all could be here. I, I want you to know that by experiencing this day, um, this is about as bad as it gets up here. So um, you're getting the worst of it. Uh, I'm President Derek Alverson. I, I feel like I should in, invoke Austin Powers and say, allow myself to introduce myself. Um, most of you already know who I am. Um, what I'd like to do this morning in my time, is offer you something of a uh, devotional musing um, or perhaps a theologically informed reflection on the end of education. I want to offer some thoughts not on the demise um, or the ceasing of education, but on the ultimate purpose of education. Uh, One of the important things we do at Covenant as an educational institution is we ask questions, and I want to ask the question, Why are we here? What is it that we're doing? Um, And on its face, it's perhaps a silly question. Uh, You, the students, are here to get an education. Faculty and staff and administration are here to deliver that education. But I want to press a little further um, using the tried and true system of philosophical inquiry that I learned from my son when he was about three years old, when he would say, why, why, why? Um, And I want to ask, what's the end purpose or the ultimate goal of the educational work that we're engaged in um, as students, as professors, as staff? uh, What's the end of education? And I want to take up this question because I think it's easy and too simple for us to just go through the motions of a school year. Uh, It's easy for us to do what we do um, simply because we've always done it because some authority tells us that we need to do it, because our parents expect us to do it. Um, But I believe the answer to this question is and ought to be different for us than the answer that's often presented to us in our culture. And while many people are not consciously asking this question, what is the end of education, uh, there are some who've raised it. In fact, uh, as analyses of education in America have come back with mixed reviews, some are positive, Many are extremely negative right now, pessimistic about the state of education in America. A number of thinkers over the past couple decades have taken up this question, what's the end of education? Almost two decades ago, Neil Postman, who many of you will know uh, through his books, Amusing Ourselves to Death and Technopoly, published a book entitled The End of Education, Redefining the Value of School. Interestingly, in that book, uh, in opposition to prevailing societal emphases on technology and consumerism. He is sort of the education without spiritual content is education without a purpose. Since then, others have taken up the question as well. And the pace of publishing on the subject has only accelerated uh, over the last few years as popular media have printed headlines, sometimes sensationalistic, about tuition bubbles and the soaring cost of education and the rise of online education and MOOCs. You guys know what MOOCs are? Massive open online courses. Uh, And America's decline relative to other nations in various aspects of educational and economic productivity. Uh, So 
I'll just share with you a few of the titles. Um, and if you want more, you can come look at my bookshelf. Um, Education's End, Why Our Colleges and Universities Have Given Up on the Meaning of Life. Uh, that's by a Yale dean. Um, Declining by Degrees, Higher Education at Risk. Crisis on Campus, A Bold Plan for Reforming Our Colleges and Universities. That's from a, a dean at Columbia University. Um, this one has a question mark in it. Higher Education? How Colleges Are Wasting Our Money and Failing Our Kids and What We Can Do About It. Um, one of my favorites is Academically Adrift, Limited Learning on College Campuses. Uh, some pretty dire prognostications. Um, all of these books, though, are concerned with the question, uh, what is education really about? What is education really for? And um, are we successfully accomplishing those ends? Um, and that's the question I'd like for us to think about a little this morning. Why are we here? What's the point? What are we trying to accomplish at Covenant College? What's the ultimate aim or end of our educational endeavor? And I'd like to propose first, quickly, what we, and I'm thinking especially of the students in the room, are not here to do. And then I want to turn to the Bible to consider what we are here to do. So first, what we're not here to do. Um, first of all, we're not here to pursue education for the sake of career alone. Uh, you're certainly being equipped for callings, and we're eager to help you find vocations that put food on the table. That's a good thing. Um, however, there's a pernicious tendency in our culture to view career placement as the end-all, be-all of education. Not long ago, Time magazine published a feature story entitled 10 Majors That Really Pay Off, with the subtitle, uh, Some Undergraduate Degrees Pay Off More Than Others. And um, this article based on some research out of Georgetown University uh, had one single criteria for evaluating the worth of degrees, and that criteria was earning potential. Uh, interestingly, eight out of the top ten were in engineering, and uh, number one was petroleum engineering. And I want you to know now we're not, we don't have any plans to introduce a petroleum engineering program anytime soon at Covenant College. Sorry. Uh, I have a close friend who is a professor at an Ivy League institution, and he called me a few years ago to lament about um, his life and about the number of students that were dropping his courses. And it was particularly frustrating that some of the students would come to him and would say, uh, Professor so-and-so, um, I really like your class, I'm really learning a lot, but can you guarantee me I'm going to get an A? And he would say, well, we haven't taken the final exam yet, so I can't guarantee you an A. And the students would say, well, I'm very sorry, I'm trying to get into Harvard Law, or I'm trying to get into the Wharton School of Business, and so I'm going to have to drop your class. And he was incredibly frustrated that these bright students weren't there, in his view, to learn. They were there to get a credential that was going to get them to a certain career. And I asked him, I said, well, can you sum up the, the ethos of your institution in three words? And he said, sure, it's excellent with, excellence without purpose. Um, which I, I thought was interesting because uh, a former dean of Harvard had recently published a book entitled Excellence Without Soul, How a Great University Forgot Education. We're not here for the sake of career alone. Secondly, we're not here to pursue education for education's sake alone. Often in response to that sort of careerist tendency in our culture, um, educators assert that we ought to learn simply for learning's sake, to love the material we study simply for its inherent value, to amass as much knowledge about that material as possible, because that knowledge in this view is good in and of itself. Now, you certainly ought to come to love the subject matter that you study, the contents of the field of inquiry that you pursue. 
These things are part of the world that God created good and hence are worthy of study and contemplation and appreciation. But you'd be hard-pressed to find in Scripture warrant to, to love any subject or field of study simply for its own sake. Now, that can be, after all, a form of idolatry. So we're not here simply for the sake of career. We're not here simply for the sake of knowledge for knowledge's sake. We're also, thirdly, not here pursuing education for the sake of citizenship um, in the United States or in any country. This is another common theme in reaction to careerist or economic reductionist tendencies, is this idealistic um, pursuit of education for the sake of citizenship. Now, your education should certainly equip you and incline you to be good citizens, to execute your civic duty faithfully. God has ordained authorities, as we know from Romans chapter 13, and scripture is clear that we're to honor those authorities, to be a blessing to our neighbors, to seek the welfare of the city um, in which we're exiles. However, I want to suggest, and I think scripture tells us, that education is preparing us first and foremost for citizenship in another kingdom. So those are quickly three things that education is not for, not for career alone, not for knowledge alone, not for earthly citizenship alone. Now, what I want to do now is look at a passage of scripture that I think speaks to the ultimate purpose, the ultimate end of education, and also has some implications for how we practice education. And I want to walk through this passage phrase by phrase, stopping to consider some of the words, uh, both what they mean, what they denote, and also what they connote or imply. Um, So here from the book of Romans, uh, the last part of chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12. This is Romans 11, 33 through 12, 2. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's a, uh, a fairly famous passage, and I would imagine that many of you um, in this room, perhaps most of you, especially if you've been through uh, New Testament or doctrine, know something of the overall structure of the book of Romans. That in the first 11 chapters, chapters 1 through 11, Paul lays out the plan of salvation, um, the foundation of salvation. And then in chapters 12 through 16, Paul turns to application the consequences of the doctrine, um, the truth, the ideas um, that are in those first 11 chapters, the consequences of the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ. And he concludes those first 11 chapters with that famous doxology that you just heard, in which you can sense Paul's enthusiasm. I would suspect that your Bible, like mine, has exclamation points at the end of the sentences there. As Paul comes to the culmination of this remarkable story of God's work of salvation, that's been laid out in those first 11 chapters. And as Paul quotes from Isaiah and Jeremiah in this almost euphoric hymn of praise to his great God. But Paul doesn't stop there. You sort of get to the end of that passage and 
Paul concludes with, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Um, to him be the glory forever. Amen. We could probably stop right there. Um, but Paul doesn't stop there. He turns to sort of the, the what now. Okay, in light of everything we've just heard of those first 11 chapters, how ought we to respond? On the basis of everything that he's recounted, Paul makes an appeal to his Roman readers um, and to us. and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, all those mercies that he's just reminded us of over the first 11 chapters, to present your bodies. Um, now, some of you might say, I thought this was about education. Um, this sounds like an argument for going to the gym. Um, that's Paul's, of course, not just talking about our bodies. We know from other passages in Scripture that he's talking about more than just our bodies. In Ephesians 6, uh, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not, Paul doesn't talk just about bodies. Um, In fact, Calvin, in commenting on this passage, points out that Paul is talking about the entirety of our person, the totality of which we are composed. Calvin says, um, you know, this is a a synecdoche. How many of you guys know what a synecdoche is? Anyone? English majors out there, I hope you're raising your hand. Um, If not, you need to go see Professor Foreman after chapel. Uh, A synecdoche is when a a part represents the whole, right? So um, those of us who are old enough might have once said, um, that guy's got a nice set of wheels and we would have meant a nice car. Or um, if you're into pirate speak, when you say all hands on deck, you don't literally mean just the hands, right? I mean, this is a synecdoche, a part representing the whole. Um, So Paul here is using this part to represent the whole of of our life, our bodies. Uh, But he's not... So he's not just talking about physical bodies, but of course what we do with our physical, physical bodies does matter. Paul's not a Gnostic. We know from earlier in the book of Romans, chapter 6, um, that the members of our bodies are to be instruments of righteousness. So the implication is the, the totality of our person. Um, and I would suggest that right ideas by themselves are not enough. If right thinking doesn't manifest itself in right behavior or right action then you don't really get it. You're not really thinking right. And this is sometimes a problem for us in evangelical Christianity. Um, It's not enough for us to collect a list of right ideas, uh, to be able to sit back in a classroom and categorize and classify other people's worldviews. The right view of the world has to be manifested in action with our bodies. Uh, Francis Schaeffer who probably deserves as much credit as anyone for popularizing this notion of worldview in evangelical Christendom, said this. As Christians, we're not only to know the right worldview, the worldview that tells the truth of what is, but consciously to act upon that worldview so as to influence society in all its parts and facets across the whole spectrum of life as much as we can to the extent of our individual and collective ability. So to put it another way, uh, for the benefit of benefit of those who are taking logic. Um, Right ideas are a necessary condition of the faithful Christian life, uh, but not a sufficient condition. And I'd encourage you to go see Davis or Wingard if that doesn't make sense. Um, Orthodoxy should lead to orthopraxy. And we all struggle with this. Paul did. He tells us that in Romans 7, right? That the things he should do, he didn't do, and the things he shouldn't do, he did. Um, But a good tree bears good fruit. 
So Paul says we're to give our bodies, the whole of our person. And then he goes on to say, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. If you read commentators on this passage, they have a lot to say about sacrifice and the various connotations of Paul's use of that term in relationship to Old Testament sacrificial practices. Um, I don't want to delve into that because I don't read Hebrew or do Old Testament. But I do want to reflect on the very obvious fact that sacrifice, that that term sacrifice clearly suggests cost and self-denial. Faithful Christian living is costly and it necessarily involves denial of self. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Uh, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I quote for Christiana Fitzpatrick's benefit, since she's a fan, famously said, uh, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you stop and think about that, that sounds pretty radical. Um, We're called to die. And Paul turns around though and says, um, he just said, give yourselves a living sacrifice. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship? And that term spiritual is, the Greek term there is logikos, um, which other translations uh, translate rational or reasonable, from which we get the word logic or logical. Uh, Paul is saying this self-sacrifice, this giving up of ourselves, is a logical response to everything that's preceded. In light of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we ought to give everything to him. We ought to die to ourselves, die to our ambitions, die to our self-centered aspirations. And I will be the first to confess that this is difficult, uh, both to comprehend what this looks like um, and to do it, to give up our life. But that's how significant Christ's atoning work on our behalf is. And Paul moves on in verse 2 to amplify or develop this notion of self-sacrifice, to tell his Roman readers and us what this looks like, how to do it, how to accomplish it. And he begins by telling us what not to do. Um, He says, do not be conformed to this world, to this eon or age. Uh, The NIV translates this, "Do do not conform to the pattern of this world. We're not to adopt the world's scheme. We're not to fit into its patterns or conform to its customs, its ways of thinking about ultimate reality or morality or what it means to be successful in this life or what the end of education is. Instead, we're to be, Paul says, transformed by the renewal of our minds. And that word that's translated transformed um, is from the Greek metamorphosis, which you all will probably recognize from high school biology. Webster, uh, the Webster Dictionary, defines metamorphosis as a change of physical form, structure, or substance, especially by supernatural means, a striking alteration in appearance, character, or circumstances. Paul's saying that we are to be metamorphed, to be completely changed. And how does that happen? By renewal or restoration or making new of our minds, by a recovery of right thinking, a thinking that's in line with original creation norms for this world, right thinking about family, about church, about political structures, about societal structures, about art, business, and science. And Paul says this transformation begins with a renewal of our, in the Greek, nous, um, in the Latin, intellectus. There's an intellectual component. 
um, at the beginning of this transformation. But again, the mind and body are not separable. We've already talked about that. We're not brains in a jar, um, nor are we bodies without a mind. Those would be zombies. Paul's already made clear um, our whole person, our mind and our bodies, to be changed in view of what Christ has done for us. And that process begins with this renewal of our minds. And the consequence of that renewal, Paul goes on to say, is, is that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, testing is an active term, an active, ongoing, present tense, continuous activity. Um, for students, that means it doesn't stop once you've gotten your grade. Um, it's to continue. Um, and it's a, a critical activity. Um, it demands that you be able to think. Uh, in fact, Paul says testing that you may discern, which has connotations of wisdom, um, that you do testing in light of biblical wisdom. So in sum, Paul's argument is this. It's only logical. It's a, the fitting and rational act of worship in light of what Christ has done for us. Everything that he, Paul, laid out in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans that we give our whole selves as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice begins, that self-sacrifice begins with the renewing of our minds. So my argument with regard to education and its ultimate end is this. Um, you are not here to be prepared for a career, though that will happen. And you are not here to acquire knowledge for its own sake though I sincerely hope that you do acquire a lot of knowledge and that you love the subject areas that you study. And you're not here to be made dutiful citizens of any earthly kingdom, though I trust that that will happen as well. Those are fine, all fine proximate goals or proximate ends, uh, but they're not ultimate ends for us as Christians. Ultimately, you're here to be pursuing the renewing of your minds so that you might give your whole person, your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength as a living sacrifice to the one who's purchased you with his blood. Your professors are here to equip you to test and to discern in every area. Remember what Paul said at the close of chapter 11 there, that from him and through him and to him are all things. And what Paul tells us in Colossians, uh, that through Christ God is rec reconciling all things to himself. So your professors are here to teach you to test and discern what is good and acceptable and perfect so that you might be faithful servants in the kingdom of Christ, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, even as you pursue callings in this world. So my encouragement, perhaps a challenge, maybe a reminder to you is this. Um, don't spend your time at Covenant learning a bunch of big ideas in a classroom and then stumbling through the rest of your life just like any other student in America. Let your whole person be changed by the renewal of your mind, a renewal that manifests itself in a life of sacrifice. It's only fitting, it's only logical, given what Christ has done for you. If you know Christ, if you've been bought by his blood, if you've repented and placed your faith in him, then you've been called by the one who's wrought your salvation through these infallible words written by the Apostle Paul, to give yourself as a living sacrifice and to begin that process with the renewing of your mind. That's good and rewarding and 
frankly enjoyable work. And I hope and trust and pray that God by his spirit will give you joy, deep and abiding joy um, this year as you pursue that work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, immensely grateful for that saving work that you've wrought on our behalf uh, that would lead um, the Apostle Paul to euphoric delight in your goodness and your faithfulness to us. We're thankful that you have called us out of darkness into the kingdom of light. And God, we pray that by your spirit you would make us faithful to respond as we ought, to respond logically by giving ourselves, our whole selves, mind and body as a sacrifice to you. God, help us to die to our selfish ambitions, our selfish aspirations, our desires for approval in the sight of the world or acclaim. God, help us to be satisfied in giving ourselves as a sacrifice to you out of gratitude for what you've done for us. And God, we pray that that spirit of self-denial and sacrifice would permeate the work that we do here at Covenant College, that we would recognize the intellectual and co-curricular work that we do on this campus as a means of preparing ourselves for lives of sacrifice um, in service to you as a part of your kingdom here on earth. And God, we pray um, that you would give us strength. This is not easy work to do. So we ask for your spirit, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.